Hey, here's my requisite shout-out to Athletic Brewing, my favorite non-alcoholic beer out there. Not a paid plug, but I am a brand ambassador, and I want to celebrate what I consider an amazing product and a great way to keep the good times rolling without getting too hammered. If you head to athleticbrewing.com, use the promo code BRENDAN020 at checkout, you get a nice little discount on your first order. I don't get any money, and they are not an official sponsor of the podcast. I just get a few points towards swag and beer. Give it a shot. Try the Athletic Light or the Free Wave. They're my personal favorites right now. The actual writing process is terrible. I mean, I do not enjoy writing. I don't understand people who say that writing is fun. I don't find it fun. Oh, hey, CNFers. It's CNF Pod, the creative nonfiction podcast, the show where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Meara. How's it going? Hey, thanks for all the podcast birthday wishes I got this past week that I got primarily from Instagram, but also some on Twitter. Very nice of you to do that. I'm glad you got to get some birthday cake, a cone hat, some party favors. It was a good time. It's nice to know that the the show means something to, to you out there. And I hope this podcast finds you well. I switched hosting, which is always a terrifying moment. I'm told it won't interrupt how you receive it in whatever podcast app you use. But there could be an issue. And if there is, I'll work on it uh, with the new host and get it up and running. So it's seamless. So you still get the juice every Friday. So I'm using Zencaster now. They're looking to do hosting, and uh, they gave me an offer I couldn't refuse. They comped me free hosting, and it has great analytics and and such, and, and good recording interfaces, and the potential to do some video stuff. I'm sort of one of those podcasters who's against video, but you never know. You might have to get with the times. Am I right? Uh, I've used them for calls for years. And I always love how they go about calls. The audio is really nice. Uh, but now I don't have to pay for hosting. And that's $20 a month in my pocket. The interface and the embed player aren't quite as pretty yet. Uh, not as flexible and customizable as it was with Libsyn. Uh, but right now, uh, small price to pay. And since I'm something of an early adopter... They might listen to my input and make things better. Maybe. Who knows? They also want to help grow the show and monetize it, which helps both of us. If ads start to populate the show in any capacity, that might sweeten the pot for Patreon, as I'd make sure to include ad-free episodes over there so you don't have to listen to me blather on about, I don't know, Athletic Greens. Though I would try to veto Athletic Greens. I don't, I don't think it matters to this show. I don't have like a million followers where there's a swath who would probably get some juice from Athletic Greens. Nothing against Athletic Greens, but there's a writing podcast, not like a human performance one. Anyway, Svati Kirsten Narula is here. She had a great feature a few weeks ago in Outside Magazine about the death of Nanda Devi Unseld, the daughter of legendary alpinist Willie Unseld. She passed in 1976. And Svati had been working on this feature for about 10 years. It started as a project for a course she took with the writer Jeff Charlotte while she was at Dartmouth College as an undergrad. 
She stuck with it over the years. And what came of it is a wonderful tribute to a beast of an athlete. We talk about why it's important to tell these stories, to keep the keep these stories alive, even when it feels like all it's doing is causing pain for the survivors or family members or friends of the of the dearly departed, if you will. Svati is the digital editor of Dartmouth Alumni Magazine, a contributing editor for Outside, and a former fellow at The Atlantic, where she really kind of cut her teeth and maybe was a bit spoiled by the atmosphere there as a young, budding journo. Make sure you're heading over to brendanomero.com hey, hey, for show notes and to sign up for the Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter. It's now moving to Substack. April 1st will be the first dispatch going from Substack. Uh, just click the lightning bolt on my website or visit rageagainstthealgorithm.substack.com. Still first of the month, no spam, can't beat it. And if you take the show, consider sharing it with your networks so we can grow the pie and get the CNF and thing into the brains of other CNFers who need the juice. Don't we all need the juice? You can also leave a kind review on Apple Podcasts so the wayward CNFer might say, shit, I'll give that a shot. Also, show's free. But it sure as hell ain't cheap. So, if you have a few bucks at your disposal, consider heading to patreon.com slash cnfpod and consider dropping a few bucks into the hat if you glean some value from what we churn and burn here at CNF Pod HQ. That, so far as I can tell, is enough housekeeping. So let's get after it. Here is Svati Kirsten Narula. <laughs> Definitely. And there's so much I didn't know. I mean, I think I would love to go back and do college all over again. And I actually, I have too many stress dreams about this. Like I have a lot. I had one just last week, again, where I was like, am I going to get into Dartmouth? Am I going to get into Yale? Whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then I have other stress dreams where I've finally gotten into Yale or I've gotten into Dartmouth again. And I'm like going uh, and about to start freshman year, but I'm doing it as someone who already went to Dartmouth and has a bachelor's degree. And I'm going for my second bachelor's degree. And somewhere like during that first day, I'm like, wait a minute, who's paying for this? And wait a minute, no one needs two bachelor's degrees. I can't be here. What's going on? But I have this dream a lot. And I think it's because I have this desire to like redo college (laughs) and make different choices. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, what what might some of those choices be? Uh, is it more uh, regret or just like you've ran out of time to exercise certain things that you wanted to do? I think it's a little bit of regret, honestly. I think, um, you know, if I could go back, I would major in something different and make better relationships with professors and just have more options open to me. I mean, I think things have worked out pretty well and I'm happy with where I am you know, in career and in my career and in my life, there's just a lot that I should have taken advantage of that I didn't um, because I didn't know any better. You know, I didn't know that it's better to get a 4.0 in in like a a major that nobody cares about. Like being a 4.0 English major is a lot better than being like a 3.0 economics major, even if economics seems like it's going to lead to better jobs than majoring in English. Do you know what I mean? And I didn't know that then. And my dad didn't know that either. And my dad cared a lot about what I majored in. And, you know, I, I just wish I could go back and change that or, you know, maybe 
um, have made better connections socially, maybe joined a sorority, which is something I didn't do, all sorts of things. Uh, and now yeah, the four yeah. kids that I interview who are applying to Dartmouth, I'm like an admissions interviewer person. Um, they hear about all my regrets and I'm like, make sure that you just like do these things and don't do what I did. But <laughs> anyway, I could talk about it. What, what did you end up majoring in? I majored in government. Um, okay. cause I convinced my dad that I was going to go and I convinced myself to, I mean, I did want to be a lawyer and I was interested in going to law school. Um, the thing that my dad didn't know and that I also didn't really know, but should have known is that it doesn't matter what you major in. You can go to law school with any major, like they don't care. <laughs> um, and, but my dad was like, no, you, you know, you have to major in something practical. And I convinced him that government was practical because it meant I was going to go to law school. But, you know, I, I really do think if I'd majored in English, my grades would have been stronger. And I think I would have had more opportunities post-graduation with better grades and maybe, you know, better relationships with professors than in the government department. What was the conversation like with your dad when you opted not to go to law school? Assuming you didn't go. Yeah. Um, he didn't mind at that because I got really, really lucky um, as a senior in college where I landed uh, an editorial fellowship at the Atlantic as a senior. Oh, so nice. that was my first job out of college. Um, and my dad was really proud of that, you know, because the Atlantic is such a prestigious place. And he was like, OK, well, if you're not going to law school, at least you're working at one of the best magazines and you're going to be successful in journalism. You know, um, mm -hmm. that was just luck, though. I mean, truly that was a, that was a lucky break for me. And then it sort of made it like, once you've worked at the Atlantic, you really do have your foot in the door in journalism in a really great way. And it's sort of like, okay, well now I'm stuck. I'm definitely a journalist. <laughs> um, so that's how that happened. What were some uh, key lessons or even growing pains you got once you arrived at the Atlantic and saw how the sausage was getting made? I don't know if there were growing pains there. I mean, I had a really fantastic year in my fellowship. It was really, uh, it was the best job I could have had out of college, but in some ways it was the worst one because it set me up to be really disappointed at all the other publications I worked at after. <laughs> um, <laughs> because when I was at the Atlantic, I, I was on the online team. So I was um, working for uh, an editor who edited a particular section of their website. Um, but I, worked with all the other editors on their website and they were all really open to pitches from me. Um, and so I ended up writing for, you know, their politics section and their entertainment section and their science section and all these different things. Um, and every editor I worked with was so smart. Everything just made sense the way they did it. I mean, from the fact, like the way the morning meetings went and the way everyone went around and talked about what they were planning on publishing that day to the way pitches were discussed to the way my stories were edited, to, you know, the way fact checking was done on the print magazine, which I only got to like see a little bit of because some of my fellow editorial fellows were working on that. Everything made sense and was rigorous and was smart. And I was like, you know, I was so proud to work there and everything that I saw, I thought was really brilliant. 
uh, that became a problem when I moved on, you know, <laughs> and I went and I worked at Quartz for several years, which was um, a bit more of a startup atmosphere. It was related to the Atlantic. They had the same owner at the time, but Quartz did things differently. And I, unfortunately, was that really annoying 23-year-old at the beginning who was like, well, at the Atlantic, we did it this way, <laughs> um, which didn't make me super popular. And it was just a different experience there. I saw in my mind, a lot more mistakes being made, but also there was a lot more experimentation. I just missed the Atlantic. And then, of course, even when I went to work at Outside and I joined the Outside staff where I was uh, for a couple years, you know, nothing compared to how they did it at the Atlantic. So, um, I, yeah, I didn't really like, I don't know about growing pains. It just sort of set me up for disappointment for the rest of my career. <laughs> Maybe I'm being a little too honest. I, I love Outside. I love Quartz. But... There's nothing like the Atlantic. And when the editors were open to pitches while you were at the Atlantic, what did you learn about the fundamentals of pitching an idea and a story? Hmm. Let's see. This is really that year at the Atlantic is really the only time in my career I've pitched anything. Uh, and I think what I've learned overall is just it's so easy to pitch when you're on staff versus being outside. I mean, I I also, mm -hmm. when I was on staff there, I fielded the pitch inbox, like the slush pile email inbox that we had from like, you know, anyone who was outside the organization could pitch. Um, I learned that connections mean a lot, you know, if they have an idea of your track record and how you write they're a lot more willing to consider what you have to say. You can be a lot more spitball-y when you're within the organization. Mm -hmm. If you're coming with a pitch and you're outside the organization and you don't know who you're pitching to, you can't be spitball-y, you know? You have to be really thoroughly prepared and sort of lay out all of your ammo in that email or in that pitch. I think it's really hard. I don't think I've ever done it. Like, I've never pitched... Uh, I've never successfully pitched uh, an outlet that I am not already a part of. I think it's really, really difficult. <laughs> That's one of the the hard lessons I think everybody starts to learn is that it is kind of a a who you know kind of business too to get yourself at least up the you know up up the chain higher in the slush pile. Uh, you'd like to think that you can just solely do it on your merits and that you're going to be discovered you know, like this little diamond in the rough of the slush pile. But so often it's like, who knows, like maybe yours is in the bottom quarter of that pile. And by the time anybody gets to that, their eyes are bleeding and they don't even care anymore. And it's like, it's, it's, it can be, it can be really dispiriting. But then the longer you stick with it, you kind of make a friend here and there and they can, they, they show you kind of show you the way and it's uh it can be really dispiriting, but it's, yeah, it's one of those things where you just kind of have to persevere. Yeah, definitely. And it does happen. I mean, I did see it happen sometimes where something would get picked out of the slush pile and they'd be like, Oh, this is a really good pitch. Okay. We don't know this writer, but they've written for the Washington post and that looks like decent work and okay. You know, we're going to take a chance on this and then something great would happen. Right. But it is just so relationship dependent uh, and what I've learned over, you know, the last few years of my career since then is just being someone that people like working with is almost more important than having good ideas because mm. all of my freelance work comes from editors having ideas on their own and sending them to me and being like, hey, here's an idea. Can you execute it for me? And that's just a really nice way to work. I can, you know, probably I can only afford to do that because I have full-time jobs and I'm not a full-time freelancer. 
Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not probably, definitely, right? If I was a full-time freelancer, I would have to get better at pitching and I would have to deal with that. Um, but I, I know too, when I'm an editor, uh, sometimes as an editor, it's a lot nicer to come up with a story idea on your own and then reach out to a writer who you know can handle it rather than putting out a pitch call and then dealing with pitches because mm. so many pitches are just, they're not focused or it's a great idea, but you don't know, you don't have any proof that the writer can pull it off, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So. What are the, the day jobs or day jobs or day job you have that you're able to, you know, thread around your freelancing and not rely on that solely? Yeah. So I'm a full-time editor at Dartmouth alumni magazine which is actually where I had my very first job in journalism, which is funny. You know, when I was a senior at Dartmouth, I had an internship at the alumni magazine. And this was when I was just starting to think I wanted to might, I might want to work in the magazine world. Um, And it was great. And my boss there was great, taught me a lot. Um, I think he gave me the recommendation that helped me get the job at the Atlantic. And then um, a few years ago, they were looking for someone and I thought, you know, Dartmouth Alumni Magazine is a great place to work. I like my boss. He's still there. It's been great. Uh, People, yeah, people sometimes when they hear that I work there are not super impressed and it doesn't feel as good as telling someone I work at outside, right? Because, you know, you think that an alumni magazine is smaller league than uh, national magazines, but I'm really proud of the work that we do. And yeah, it's a stable full-time job. (laughs) So it's pretty good. So I understand that that Jeff Charlotte played some sort of a role in this in this great feature that you wrote uh, for Outside that came out recently. So tell me a little bit about the backstory of of your of your piece here uh, that we're that we're about to talk about. Sure. So um, I said that you know I wish I had majored in English in college, and the truth is I only took one English class in college, and it was uh, the spring of my junior year. Um, and it was taught by Jeff Charlotte. I think it was called Raising the Dead, and it was a creative nonfiction class. I had heard for a while from other people that Jeff Charlotte was this great professor, um, and if you can take a class with him, you should take it. And I don't remember the English department offering that many creative nonfiction classes, but at the time, I had just started getting, like, I was procrastinating on my schoolwork a lot by reading long-form magazine articles. I was just spending a lot of time reading old outside articles and old GQ and Vanity Fair articles and starting to think like, wow, being a long-form magazine writer seems pretty incredible. Um, So this class was kind of the closest I could get to that. And it was called Raising the Dead. So we were learning how to write about dead people. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And he gave us an assignment that was to find an old photograph and write a thousand words about it. And at this time, you know, as a junior in college, I was also starting to think, hey, Outside Magazine is like my ideal magazine to write for. What if I try and find an outdoorsy photograph and write something that would be kind of in the realm of what Outside Magazine would do? Um, And I remembered my mom telling me about this mountain climber named Willie Unsold, uh, who was one of the first Americans to climb Mount Everest. Uh, He directed the Peace Corps in Nepal in the 1960s, which was also when my mom lived in Nepal for a couple of years with her parents um, because they worked for the State Department. And so my mom, as a little girl, had crossed paths with Willie Unsold. And she had seen his jar of toes (laughs) 
because he lost nine toes to frostbite on Mount Everest. And then he kept those toes in a jar with formaldehyde ever after. And apparently he liked showing those to people at dinner parties. Um, So my mom had told me this story and I thought that my mom had had a picture of him somewhere. You know, I thought from like a family picnic or something in Nepal, my mom had a picture of Willie Unsold. So I thought, Willie Unsold doesn't seem to be a well-known guy. Maybe I can find this picture that my mom has of him and I can write a thousand words about him. And so I called my mom and my mom didn't have any pictures of him. She's like, yeah, yeah, Willie Unsold's great, but I I don't have any pictures. Um, So then I just went to Google and I thought, all right, we're allowed, it doesn't need to be a personal picture. We're allowed to use any picture for this assignment. So I went online to find pictures of Willie Unsold. And one thing that caught my eye was a picture that actually is in this story. If you read my story and outside, there's a picture of Willie and his daughter, Debbie. And it's this beautiful black and white portrait of the two of them. Um, And I think it's in the University of Washington Special Collections Library. And I saw that picture and I was like, wow, who is this, you know, next to Willie? And the caption really explains it all. The caption on, if you find that picture online, the caption tells you this is Willie Unsold and his daughter, Nanda Devi Unsold. And this is March of 1976. And um, a few months later, they went to climb the mountain she was named after, and then she died. And I was like, whoa, what? And in this picture of Devi, you know, she's just like, got this beautiful smile. Um, I don't know if it's a cliche to say that she looks radiant, but she really looked radiant. She had this long blonde hair that kind of reminded me of how my mom looked when she was that age. And uh, she was very much an American girl, but she had this Indian name, right? And I was like, wow, like, it's so cool that there's like, you know, this all American looking person with an Indian name. Um, Because that's something that, you know, I'm half American and I'm half Indian and growing up with an Indian name, like I told you earlier, like that's been hard for me. Like I have not forgiven my parents for my name. I spent many years wanting to be named Samantha. <laughs> um, yeah. So it was just cool to see this person who who looked very confident and had that kind of unique name, but was so clearly American. Um, and obviously the fact that she went and climbed the mountain she was named after and then died was intriguing. And I had never heard of that. And so I started to do some research about it. And that ended up being my 1000 word assignment for this class was just writing a thousand words about Willie and Debbie and how they went on an expedition together to climb her mountain and she died. Um, this was in June of 2012 or no, The class ended in June of 2012. I think this was probably in March of 2012 when we had that assignment. But then later in the semester, uh, Professor Charlotte asked us to take one of our short assignments we had done and turn it into something bigger. So I chose that one and I expanded it into like a 3000 word story. And I started contacting people who had actually been on the expedition where she died. And it turned out that one of them lived in Hanover, New Hampshire, and was also a Dartmouth alum. So I was able to actually meet with him at the town library and talk to him about this and use that for my longer piece. And I just really got sucked into it. And I think what I wrote in the end and turned in, you know, in my mind at the time, it was something that was like fit to be published by outside, Um, which was my goal. You know, that was the dream. I was like, how cool would it be if I grew up and got to be a writer for Outside Magazine? As far as what happened between then and then getting the story actually published, I mean, 
I, I sort of thought that was the end of it. And I, I moved on and, you know, went into my journalism career, but kept that in the back of my mind. The thing that's interesting about this story is like, I'm not the first person to write about it at all. Uh, mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. the long story that I wrote for Jeff Charlotte's class leaned heavily on two books as sources. There was a book that um, a man named John Raskelly wrote, and John Raskelly was actually a member of the expedition. And then he wrote a whole book about the expedition that was published in 1987. So 11 years after the expedition, uh, I leaned on that really heavily. And then there was another book that was a biography of Willie Unsold that got in depth. Um, and that was called Fatal Mountaineer by Robert Roper. Both of those books had a lot of good info and details that I sort of, you know, referenced uh, to write my story. And I think because of that, I didn't think it was actually something that could turn into a magazine article because you can't write a magazine article just by like, paraphrasing other people's books you know like yeah just regurgitating what's already been said yeah you can't do that I thought you know what I wrote for that class had a little bit of something new to it because I had called Debbie's mother Jolene and I had gotten a quote from her and I talked to Andy who had been on the expedition and had actually fallen in love with her and was engaged to her and I'd gotten to know him and I, I got his side of the story and I put that in there a little bit but it just wasn't it wasn't a lot. So I didn't really think it could ever be uh, a real magazine story. But then when I was on staff at Outside, um, I joined Outside in 2017 as a social media editor. And in 2018, I actually realized, you know what, Debbie's family is still out there. You know, her brothers are still alive, her sister's still alive, her mom's still alive. And I realized that, you know, when it comes to this story, their voices had really not been heard. And I thought it was just kind of a like, I didn't expect the pitch to really go anywhere. And like I said, I'm not experienced at pitching. I don't, I don't pitch stories. I'd never really, I had pitched a feature once before in my career, but this was not something I was used to doing, but it was easy because I was on staff and I was going to be in the pitch meeting anyway, right? We had a features meeting every month at outside. And I thought, you know what, why don't I just like excerpt some of this stuff that I wrote for this college paper? And why don't I make a proposal that I go travel to Olympia, Washington, where the unsold family lives and, you know, see if outside wants me to go interview Debbie's surviving family members and try and put kind of a new spin on this and like freshen it up and retell the story, but do it more as like a profile of Debbie. And the reason that I was thinking that way was because what I had always wondered ever since I learned about this story and, you know, the two books that I had read and everyone I had talked to, it just felt like Debbie was this unrealistic person. Like, it didn't seem like anyone could actually be that cheerful and that radiant and that lovely. And I think now in hindsight, you know, people are reluctant to talk about a dead person in any other way. But I still thought, you know, maybe I could get some more depth. Maybe I could learn a little bit more about her and what she was really like and what she wanted to do with her life and things like that. It just, it it didn't seem like there was a really good, clear picture of who she was as a person in anything I had read. So that was kind of the angle that I proposed. And to my surprise, you know, the editor-in-chief of Outside and all the other editors in the room that day were like, yeah, this is a great pitch. Go for it. Do it. 
it was really exciting. I remember some people, you know, on staff giving me like high fives after that pitch meeting. And I was like, wow, like I'm going to write a feature for outside. and It's going to be about this, like this story that I've been thinking about for years. And, you know, it's just, uh, you know, it, it gave me shivers. Um, and I, you know, had time and, uh, expenses paid for me to travel to Olympia, meet with the unsold family and talk to them. That was interesting because they have, how do I say this? I think since Debbie's death, the unsold family has really been hounded by journalists and not just journalists, but storytellers of all stripes because Mm -hmm. their family is so interesting. And this in particular, this event, was so dramatic that, you know, Robert Redford wanted to make a movie about Willie and they wanted to have this play heavily into it. You know, all the books that were written about Willie had this event heavily emphasized. And I think the unsolds were just a little bit, you know, they had been burned in the past. Um, Yeah. So getting them to talk to me felt like a big win. I think part of the reason they agreed to talk to me was because I showed up clutching this flyer um, that they had sent out to their close friends and family after Debbie's death. And it was this lovely memorial flyer that I referenced in the story. And they had sent it to my grandparents because they had known my grandparents all those years ago in Nepal. Um, And I think me showing up and being like, Hey, like you knew my grandparents, I'm holding this, you know, these beautiful pictures of Debbie. I just want to know about Debbie. I think that made them willing to talk to me. They still, I don't think they opened up to me or trusted me, but they let me into their home and they talked to me for several days and gave me some more info about Debbie's childhood that I really appreciated and was able to bring into the story. Yeah, that, uh, yeah, you getting that access, given that they had been burned in the, in the past is, is really, really tricky. And, and so you, so you attribute that 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 you had this flyer, and then that 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 gave you that gave you a leg up against anybody else who was trying to, in some way, benefit from you know telling that story. I think so. I wonder too if it helps that I was a young woman and not like, you know, a man in his forties, and that's traditionally been the identity of people who've been writing about this. You know, I don't think mm-hmm. they've had many young women come to them wanting to write about it. Um, what sucks is, uh, they still felt burned by this. Uh, I did not want that to happen, but I, I've since heard from, um, Debbie's sister and she's very upset about the story and other people who are in the story are very upset about it. And I think that's been hard. That's been sad. I understand why. I mean, I think there's a lot I can say about why everyone who's in the story is upset about it. I, I hate it when that happens. And I think, For me, something that has guided me as a journalist my whole career is, you know, if the people you're writing about tell you when they see the story, like, yeah, you got this right, that's the highest compliment you can get, right? I'm used to getting that feedback from scientists. Like one of the most rewarding parts of my career has been science writing and getting a scientist to say, yeah, you explained this to the public in exactly the right way. Like, that's wonderful. Um, but I also realized that if you're writing about people in power, you know, who need to be held accountable for their actions, you can't expect them to love what you write. And I also think sometimes when you're writing about private individuals and their private lives, they're not going to be happy, not necessarily because you did anything wrong, but rather because 
all of us as humans, we don't see ourselves clearly. And so the journalist's job is to write about you as they see you. And that's never going to look like what you see when you look in the mirror, you know? And I think that can be really hard. And I think that can be upsetting for people, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the journalist did anything wrong. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and what, what were some, some things that they took issue with? So John Raskelly, who's in the story, was upset because he thought the story uh, painted him as a misogynist. That was the feedback I got from him. I don't think the story did that at all. Uh, I think that is an accusation that has been leveled at him by other people over the years. And maybe he's so used to hearing it that it was all he could see in my story. Um, I'm curious, you know, what you thought, because uh, you read it and you know who I'm talking about. Like, what did you, how do you think he came off? Let's see. Um, remind, it's been a little while since I read it. Remind me, was he the one who who, who did not like uh, the idea of you know, women coming along mm-hmm. on, a, on a mountaineering expedition? Mm-hmm. But we didn't say, I mean, I didn't say in the story that he thought women couldn't climb or anything like that. He just, he had a very specific reason for not wanting uh, a specific woman, you know, Marty, to be on this expedition. And it was because... He, she was in a relationship or had been in a relationship with someone else who was supposed to come. And he thought their emotions were going to be all muddled. You know, that's what he said. And that's what I wrote. And he, you know, yeah, that's right. I, to me, he, he did kind of come off a little bit, but I understood the, the logic in, in a sense that putting like what, in what you're saying that, you know, because of the, you know, the, the, couple dynamic could could throw into danger the the expedition which is very obviously just very inherently dangerous so i can i can see where he's coming from but i also i i also see i also see what what you're saying too and i think you know you can take that fact right which we checked with him and which we know to be pretty true that he felt this way about it endangering the expedition. And you can read into it however you want. Like, I think there are readers who saw that and thought, oh my God, what a misogynist. But I think that's a matter of debate. And that's definitely not something Mm -hmm. I wrote, you know? And so for him to say like, oh, you're, you know, you painted me this way. I don't know. I wasn't, but, you know, I, I feel bad about that. I feel bad if he's regretting being interviewed by me, you know, I couldn't have written the story without him agreeing to an interview and heck, he provided the photos for the story too. So it wouldn't have been possible without him. And I I think, you know, we have a crisis in journalism right now around the world of people not trusting journalists. And if you interview someone for a story, if they cooperate with you, and then when that story comes out, if they feel betrayed in some way, I think that's really bad for everyone. And so, I, I mean, I think it was unavoidable in this case, but I feel bad about it. And then if you look at Debbie's family, the person I've heard from is her sister, who told me that her takeaway from my story was that women don't belong on mountaineering expeditions, uh, which really surprised me and is not my takeaway at all and was not something yeah. that I uh, implied or I thought anyone implied. But I, no, I, d- I didn't get that at all either. Yeah. But I think I think that's colored by her, you know, as Debbie's sister, she has been living with this story for decades. And she has, she and her whole family, I think, have endured judgment from people and 
rumors from people and all sorts of stuff that has made them feel like, okay, everyone looks at the story this way. And I think that really colored her perception of what was actually written. I don't think she, she looked at what was on the page and took it as it was. I think she interpreted it with that lens of, okay, this was written by someone who's attacking me and my family because that's all that it's ever been. Uh, the the way the way you profiled Devi, I found her to be an incredibly skilled mountaineer, someone who was almost born to do this, and she just got sick. Yeah, you know? and uh, that's it. Yeah, you know, it sucks, but she just got she got sick and she died up there. Yeah, and it wasn't anyone's fault, and uh, you know I don't think it makes anyone look bad. You know I don't think she did anything wrong. I don't think her father did anything wrong. I think maybe people who are very close to this are so used to other people looking at it and trying to point fingers that that was all they could see. So, but. Right. And I can see how like maybe if you view it through the wrong prism or the wrong lens, you might be like, oh, this is like cautionary tale. Women should not be mountaineering or, or her father was reckless. Why would you take your young daughter up this very dangerous mountain that hasn't really been summited from you know, you know, a, a particular path or whatever. And so it's like, I can, I can see, I can understand where people might be coming from, but as someone totally detached from either camp that might view it a certain way, I, uh, I saw it for what it is, which I thought you told a wonderful story. And I thought you gave Devi a, a tremendous amount of respect and really every, there's no one in this story that I would blame or find unlikable. I thought it was handled extremely well. Thank you so much. I mean, that was the goal, right? But I think yeah. I think it's really important to acknowledge that it caused pain to these people, and I do feel bad about that. And I think also now some of them are asking, "Well, why did you have to write it anyway?" And I think that's mm-hmm. a valid question too, right? Because this wasn't like some amazing piece of investigative journalism that's going to affect anyone's life, really. But something I've been thinking about is, you know, why is it valuable to tell people that Debbie existed? Not just Debbie, but Willie, right? Why is it valuable to know that they existed and that they did this and that this is how it turned out? And for me, the thing that just keeps coming back to me is like this documentary called Free Solo. Did you see that movie? I did. Okay. So for me, what I hope people get from this story is kind of what I got from Free Solo, which is like, oh my God, it is invigorating to know that there are people on this planet who do these things. You know, like that's how I feel about Alex Honnold. I would never in a million years try and climb anything without a rope, right? That's not me. I think what he's doing, you know, and people judged him and his life very harshly after that movie came out. But that movie was really inspiring to me. And I think invigorating is the big word. Like for me, it makes me feel more alive to know about other people who are taking risks and doing things that I wouldn't do um, and are just different from me. And Debbie was one of those people. I mean, Debbie took risks and Debbie was brave and um, really different from me. You know, I'm the type of person who would not be able to climb if I was feeling sick. You know, I would have gone down very early. Um, But it's good to know that there are other people who are different. Like that's what's exciting to me. And that is where I think the value comes from in this story. And I think that's why it's such an outside story. I think, you know, other people in outside's audience feel the same way. And that's why they were happy to read it and happy to learn about this. 
I, I might get, yeah, along this along this theme. I, I just want to maybe hear you keep talking about like you know uh, why it is important to 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 tell these stories and even even like it's painful for the family to to dredge up to dredge up these stories. Like uh, I know you're, in, you're watching Free Solo and you're very inspired by that. Uh, but why? Yeah, why is it so uh, ingrained in us that we you know that it is important for us to continually tell these kind of stories? Yeah, I don't know. I think, I mean, for me, I find value in knowing like what's possible in the world, right? I mean, I think of another great story that I loved, uh, which Outside Magazine published probably more than a decade now about uh, free diving. Um, And I remember when I read that and learning that there are people who are, you know, use it just holding their breath for so long that they can dive 100 feet under the ocean or, you know, more than a hundred feet in many cases, um, it expands your knowledge of like what humans are capable of. Uh, that's how we learn about the world. And I think also how we learn about ourselves. Yeah. I think that's important. What was the, as you were reporting and writing the story, you know, what were some of the big challenges that you, that you encountered over the course of, let's say even your reporting and interviewing on a very sensitive subject? I think really the toughest thing, um, which doesn't have as much to do with this, the sensitivity of the subject, but rather just how long ago the events happened, a lot of people didn't remember things. Um, yeah. And even worse, you know, I reported the story in 2019. Well, I reported some of it in 2012, and then I reported some of it in 2019, and then we fact-checked it in 2022. And so in between all of those years, people's memories degraded. And there were things that I thought I got crystal clear in 2019 and put in my draft that then in 2022, during the fact-checking process, people didn't remember. And it wasn't just people I had interviewed who didn't remember. There were things I didn't remember. You know, I Mm -hmm. uh, had to annotate every single line in the story and have a source for it. And there were some lines in the story that I loved Like there was a great quote I had in there from Willie and I could not find my source for it. And I know I never would have put it in there in the first place if it hadn't been backed up by, you know, a good source. Couldn't find it anywhere. It was just gone, totally gone, you know? Um, And then there were, there was someone we interviewed who um, he had told me something pretty clearly on the phone in 2019, but then, in the fact-checking process in 2022, he said I he didn't remember anymore, and we had to go with that, you know? So uh, people's memories just over the years, that that was really hard. I like that, granted, like, you have, you know, the, you know, steady job over the years that lets you, you know, t- take your time with things. But I do like that this story really took essentially, like, 10, you know, 10 years, 11 years for you to like fully realize and synthesize. And I know in an email you said you were a little self-conscious about that, but I think it really speaks to how patient sometimes you have to be with work like this and that it can take a long time. Uh, So I just, maybe you can speak to just sometimes the, the patience it takes and, you know, and maybe also uh, piggybacking on that is just what, Obviously, it's stuck in your craw for so long. Like, is a story you truly had to tell to, that really carried you through, like, you know, a decade's worth of time between conception and realization? It was hard at times because what happened, part of the reason for the big delay here was I pitched it 
when I was still on staff at Outside. And then I turned it in in 2019, months after I had quit Outside and gone to work for Dartmouth. So when I turned it in, my editors at Outside had kind of forgotten about me a little bit and had maybe thought that the story wasn't coming in. And I turned it in and I was like, here it is. And they were like, oh, great. We don't have time to edit this right now, but it's great. We're still crazy about it. Thank you. Uh, By the way, when you were on staff, we weren't going to pay you for it because you were on staff and now you're not on staff. And I guess now we have to pay you something. So let's work that out, you know. Um, And, you know, it was an evergreen story. There was no real time hook here. The reason we published it now was because I had gotten access to the family And other people who were sort of looking back on it, you know, looking back on it with that foggier lens of here's what we remember all these years later. That was part of the angle, too. But really, it it, it wasn't super time sensitive. So it didn't need to be published in 2019. So I think what happened was, you know, I filed it. uh, My editor started working on it. And then the pandemic hit. And then everyone at outside, just like everyone everywhere, was just overwhelmed and sort of barely functioning. And this story, because it was evergreen, got put to the side. And I, um, at first, was very understanding about that. And then I started checking in like every three months to be like, hey, what's happening? Do you need anything more from me on this? Um, And I know every freelancer can relate to that, right? Like emailing an editor and hearing nothing back. Um, And it got to the point where I started trying to ask other people on staff who I was still in touch with, like, hey, have you heard anything? you know what's happening with this story? And um, people kept saying, yeah, I mean, it's like, we know that Chris likes it and we know he's going to publish it. We just, he's not getting to it right now for whatever reason, we don't know why. I gave up on it after about a year. I was like, this is never getting published. I don't know what happened, but you know, whatever. And I think (laughs) something that I learned in this process and that I'm proud of is I didn't burn any bridges over this. I think there are freelancers out there who would have, and I don't, I don't blame them, but I think there are freelancers out there who would have gone, you know, put outside on blast and been like, Oh my God, they they're holding this story and they're not publishing it. And it's terrible. Yada, yada, yada. Um, I didn't feel like I could do that because I wanted to keep the door open I wanted to work with them again, but also they paid me for it. They paid me for it way before, like in a sense, I felt like I was being ghosted, but they also paid me for it. And I was like, okay, well, at least I've been paid. I don't really know what more I can do. I guess it's just going to sit there and maybe I should let this go. And, you know, this is a story that, you know, has been told before and, uh, you know, I just maybe need to let it go. Um, But I maintained good relationships with everyone at Outside I gave them the benefit of the doubt. And I thought, you know, I, I, I don't know. Um, and I just kept asking like every six months, I asked a different person. And finally, you know, there was some reshuffling and outside and I think uh, people were able to breathe a little bit. And then they were like, we do want to publish this story. Let's get working on it again. And I was able to, to work on it with Alex Hurd, who's now the editor in chief. Um, and it got carried over the finish line. It just, yeah, it was good to be patient. It was good to maintain those relationships. I, I don't know if they would have still picked it up after all those years if I hadn't stayed in touch with everyone and stayed on good terms and been doing other freelance work for them. 
I think staying in the orbit and maintaining good relationships is just really, really important. And I, I, I do think part of the reason that they finally got around to publishing it was because they liked me, honestly. I think, you know, in this industry, being liked is really important. And I don't yeah. want to be on here, you know, saying that everyone likes me. I don't think everyone likes me. <laughs> but I think if the right people like you, it helps a lot. That's just been my experience. Yeah, it would have been really easy for you to go on Twitter and just like, be like, this is fucking bullshit, you know, and take this person down. Yeah. You know, they killed my story without killing it. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. Oh. Yeah. And look, I understand why people do that. And I know with outside in particular, I've seen people do that. I just, I think because I had worked there and I knew what it was like on the inside and I knew that the people who are making these decisions behind the scenes and, you know, like everyone has good intentions. They're good people. So I I wasn't, I didn't feel like I wanted to do that, but I understand how different it is when you're a freelancer you don't have those relationships and you just feel like you're being taken advantage of. Like I understand. (laughs) Now with this story under, under your belt, you know, what other things are, uh, are piquing your taste and what are things you want to pursue in, you know, in this vein? I'm not sure. I mean, I love writing about mountaineering. Um, I uh, have written a lot of stuff about Mount Everest, which is great. You know, I recently read a story about, this mountaineer in Nepal by another guy who used to work for outside named Grayson Schaefer. And while I was reading this story, all I could think about was, wow, what a cool reporting trip he got to go on because he got to go to Nepal and Everest base camp and go on all these helicopters to follow that guy. So I think for me, any more adventure stories where I get to go on location with someone and then, you know, write a big profile would be great. I wrote a profile of a running coach actually for runner's world earlier in 2022. And that was really gratifying. I think what I'm trying to say is I I would like the opportunity to travel and shadow someone and then write about them. That's like really what brings me alive and makes me happy when I'm writing is, is getting to see someone at work in their environment and then translate that into a long profile that's rich in details. Um, But I don't have anything in particular on my radar right now. I'm just kind of trying to breathe and you know I'm still talking about this story with a lot of people and you know managing my full-time job (laughs) so we'll see yeah we'll see who are some writers that you really admire and light you up and write the kind of profiles and features that you want to continue to do yeah I think the guy I just mentioned um Grayson Schaefer is one of them Mm -hmm. um he's written a lot of great stuff for outside this profile that I just mentioned was actually in GQ But he's one of those writers who, you know, I can go back to where I was on campus in college my junior year before I signed up for that Jeff Charlotte class when I read one of Grayson's stories and outside and I thought, ooh, this might be something I want to do. Like, this is awesome. And it was a story about a whitewater kayaker who was killed by a crocodile. And, you know, in some ways, I, I hate that I'm so into stories like this where people die because I... I think it's really, again, going back to the impact of this story I just wrote, I think it's really, really hard to be close to something bad happening and then see that turned into entertainment. Um, But I, I, I think it's a good challenge to be the writer who's taking that story and trying to turn it into entertainment in a way that's sensitive and decent um, and respectful. Uh, So yeah, uh, I think 
pretty much everything Grayson has written has been really inspiring and, and something that I want to do. Um, Taffy Ackner is another person, Taffy Burdesser Ackner, who has written amazing celebrity profiles for a number of magazines. You know, pretty much anytime she writes something, I'm like, you got to jump on this and you got to really appreciate the details she throws in there and the scenes that she puts together with her subjects. I love, you know, finding models of that nature and you like, you try to get into the bones of what they're working on. Um, is there a particular aspect of, of writing and synthesizing a story that lights you up a little more than others, be it the reporting or the writing or rewriting? I think I'm big on the reporting aspect. I really like sitting with people and listening to them. A lot of people have told me I should be a therapist, which sometimes sounds easier than being a writer. The actual writing process is terrible. I mean, I do not enjoy writing. I don't understand people who say that writing is fun. I don't find it fun at all. Um, yeah, I read a blog post from a former uh, literary agent, Nathan Bransford, and his post was like, if basically like if writing is if you find writing easy, you're not you're not good enough. That's so it's funny. Like, There's, I think that's like. <laughs> I think Thomas Mann also said that it was something like a true writer is like the person for whom it is hard to write or something. And I, I like saw that quote when I was in high school and then sort of like secretly held on to it all this time. But you know, I don't want yeah, to. If you, if you think writing is easy, you're probably not very good at it. <laughs> that, that... But we're not supposed to say that because we don't want to offend the people who are actually have fun writing. Like more yeah. power to you. <laughs> Has any part of it, uh, you know, be it, be it the writing or rewriting, has anything gotten a little bit easier for you where you can start focusing on like higher level stuff um, or is it all hell? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it really is all, all hell. I mean, I think it's great once you get into a groove, <laughs> once you get past like the first paragraph, you know, the revising process, I think in theory should be fun because I really do enjoy editing. But revising feels very painful as well, too, you know, and I think something I experienced with this story, which I would love to hear from more experienced writers, you know, if it always feels this way, is when I finally saw the story laid out in print, I read it and I was kind of like, oh, like this prose is not very good. You know, I think because I, when you go from your first draft, when you like have turns of phrase and you have sentences that you're really proud of. And then they get cut or edited necessarily for the sake of the story. And then in the end, you're like, wow, this has all been chopped up and reorganized so much that it's just it's just not pretty anymore. Does everyone feel uh, that way when they finally read, you know, the last copy after like 20 revisions? <laughs> I think I've, I, I haven't been like rigorously edited uh, like at a major magazine, but there have been some instances where I've had things edited i'm like oh wow i th really thought that that sentence i wrote kind of was kind of funny or was it just had a really nice snap crackle and pop to it and it got cut and i was like hmm i like i always defer and like to the editor i'm like all right you guys know better but like there are some lines i'm like i've been writing long enough where like i, I know it can sound good every now and again and i'm like yeah that sounds good like oh damn you cut it and then one person like like wrote in like a joke I did not write and I was like that's not okay yeah because like <laughs> like I'm like that's gotta come out because you know whatever I'm all for a good pun but like that's I did not write that 
you know, so that's got to come out. So like th- that's happened to me before, but I, I totally see like it's like unrecognizable, and you're like, what? And and it's your name that's on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's not. I mean, I, I don't want to accuse anyone of making my story unrecognizable in this particular case. Um, yeah, because it wasn't. I mean, it really. Um, Alex, who ultimately did the line editing, only touched what he needed to touch, which was great. But, you know, in the fact checking process, too, we had to make so many little adjustments because I made a, you know, my draft would have a statement. And then in the fact checking process, we would be like, oh, we need to hedge this. And then you hedge it. And then the sentence isn't pretty anymore, you know. Um, But it's funny. It goes back to I had such a great experience being edited at The Atlantic that first year of my career because those editors never like they hardly ever killed my darlings really they just like they only made my writing better you know like every single one of them who touched my writing they just made it better um and I think sometimes when editors make your writing worse it's because they're just overworked and they find it easier to rewrite your stuff rather than working with it if that makes sense and I do that as an editor too sometimes like I will maybe be halfway through editing a piece and then I'll realize, Oh crap. Like I have just taken this writer's voice out and I've put it all in my own voice and that's not fair. And I, I did that because it was easier than actually dealing with what was on the page, you know? Yeah. So it's a balance. And sometimes, sometimes some editors are better at it and some are worse and sometimes they're just overworked and that's why it happens. Yeah. Very nice. Well, I want to give you one more question here, and it's usually what I, how I end these conversations, and it's asking you, the guest, for a recommendation for the listener out there, and that can be anything uh, anything that you're excited about that you want to just share and uh, see if other people can glean the same kind of joy you're getting from it. Okay. I have one. I can't believe I have one. This is great. And you know what? It's a podcast, and I do not... I hope you don't mind me saying this. I'm not really a podcast person. Don't listen to a lot of podcasts. I listened to a couple of your episodes before I came on. Um, But the the reason I'm going to give this recommendation is because this is the only podcast that I have listened to like every episode of and like I'm actually psyched about. It's called Tooth and Claw and it's done by three guys. Uh, One of them is a wildlife biologist and every episode they go into like an animal attack story um, mm. from real life and they sort of break down, you know, from the animal's perspective, what happened and, you know, what did the human do wrong to get attacked by the grizzly bear and what else went on and all these things. And it's just so informative and entertaining at the same time and really just a joy. Like, I, I love those guys. I love that podcast. So I think everyone should listen to Tooth and Claw. Cool. And I, I think you might enjoy Ologies with Allie Ward. Ooh. Have you heard of that one? I haven't. She, she's been doing it for five or six years. There's probably close to 300 episodes at this point, but they're, they're all great. You could go all the way back to number one. They sound great. Uh, she interviews just uh, scientists about whatever, whatever it is, like the first one with Jess Phoenix on uh, volcanology. And so they just talk about volcanoes and uh, Allie is super funny and charming. And, um, and so, yeah, they'll, they'll talk about like, you know, whales or fruit flies or making cider, you know, like, (laughs) so all these ologies and uh, it's uh, it's, I think you dig it given that you have a propensity for science and uh, an understanding for it. I think you'd, you'd 
you'd kind of dig it in that sense because uh given that tooth and claw is a wildlife biologist at, a, at the helm too yeah all right well thank you brendan i will go look it up and i'll i'll start listening <laughs> fantastic well thank you so much for carving out an hour and talking shop here about this you know the the wonderful feature that uh that ran in outside so i just want to commend you on a job well done and thanks for coming on the show to talk about it thank you so much for wanting me to come talk about it it was really flattering and it was a pleasure Hey, thanks for listening, ZNFers, and thanks to Svati. That was that was a good time. That was a toe-tapping good time. Yeah, when we stopped recording, I was telling her about the Prefontaine story and how I relate to how hard it is to talk about you know, a dead icon with family and friends of that person when they've been badgered for 40 or 50 years by writers and storytellers and how tough it is to lobby for access because a lot of times you're like, I've already spoken about that or I don't have anything new to add. You know, and to continue to lobby yourself and to say you're different than the others when they've been burned for years, if they've been burned. And I know in the Prefontaine story, many have been have been burned or gotten the story wrong. And so here I am coming through and be like, hey, I want to talk about this. Hey, and they're like, go fuck yourself. How do you work around that? I'm still trying to figure it out. If you like this conversation as much as I did, consider sharing it and tagging me and the show at CNFPod on Twitter or at Creative Nonfiction Podcast on Instagram. This show will only grow because of you. As you know, I'm something of a nobody, so it's the validation of your endorsements that make the needle move. So, you know, I, I, there's just so much content out there, so many shows, many more new shows cropping up all the time. And this show will only survive the pod fade if you celebrate it and share it so long as it's worth sharing and celebrating. Also, there's patreon.com slash cnfpod if you feel like throwing a few bucks in the tip jar. Show is free. Sure as hell ain't cheap. And so here for the parting shot, I don't I think I've shared this analogy before, but I think it bears repeating. So as you know, the the show just turned 10 this week, which is amazing that it's stuck around that long or that I've stuck with anything longer than you know, a day. Or like five episodes, which was kind of the case the first four years of the show. But that's neither here nor there. Um, I still want to grow the pie as it'll help me celebrate more writers, inspire writers, and maybe make a little bit of scratch. I'm less concerned with the latter, but whatever. Not going to turn my nose up and actually making a little a few bucks on the, on the show. Uh, anyway, many of us. To kind of hope to just be discovered, you know, be it a viral blog post or maybe uh, the newspaper runs a feature on us or people randomly come across us. And all we have to do is create, create, create. And maybe that happens for the tiniest sliver of people. Here's where the farmer's market metaphor comes in. It just makes so much sense to me and I repeat it to myself all the time. You might own an apple orchard and grow delicious organic apples. Everyone who tries your apples loves them. And they're like, how have I not heard of these apples before? And it's because you didn't take your apples to the farmer's market where your customers are actually hanging out. Some people might drive by your orchard and be like, hey, that looks appetizing. Let's try them apples. Or you can meet your readers or your listeners or your customers where they're already congregating. You need to bring your apples to the market. And so it is with the podcast. You know, I'm working on similar things like I did with Long Reads last year. It was that Atavis Long Reads partnership where I bring the show 
to to the people who would benefit from it, you know, be it for craft insights or to be inspired or entertained by working writers doing the thing, you know, mid-level and on the rise writers like an Elizabeth Rush or very well established, like famous writers like a Mitchell S. Jackson or David Grant. Bottom line, you can't hashtag your way to an audience. Social media is like a 1980s mega mall. There's too much going on, too much glut. And you can only hope someone stumbles into your shop. Yet only social media algorithms may or may not show your link to your audience. But if you head to where they're at and go to the administrator and say, hey, I've got these apples I think your people will really like. How about I package them nicely and they get some value and some nutrition and I get some awareness for the show. I can't tell you how many times people say of this podcast in particular, and I imagine others out there too, that I can't believe I haven't heard of it before. And you hope they stick around and tell the others. And that's a failure on my part not to find the people, get it, uh, promote it, and get it into the right hands. There's just so much out there vying for our attention. So, so you pick your audience and say, I'm going to serve them. Find out where they hang out. You know, maybe it's uh, Brevity or The Rumpus or Long Reads. And you say, how do you like these apples? Stay wild, CNFers. And if you can do, interview. See ya.